I'd been bitten by mosquitoes my whole life um, and never gotten sick from them. So it was just kind of something I just blew off. In 2016, Jennifer Tank was living with her family in Avondale. It was the time of year where mosquito bites come and go. It was summer, so I, and we had a pool. So I was out in the backyard and I was sunbathing. I got bit on my foot. And just from my knee down to my shin, my leg got this really weird burn on it. And I was like, that's weird. It was like a rash. But something was different this time. At first, everything seemed normal. And I didn't really care. Again, it was like, whoop-de-doo, I got a mosquito bite. This sucks, it itches. But within a week of having that mosquito bite, I started feeling ill. It's like a day or two later, I started feeling really ill. And, and that was like the first sign. Like in retrospect, looking back, it was like, huh, interesting. Just to kind of look back and look at all the little different ways that this virus unfolded is pretty bizarre. Itchiness and temporary red welts are the usual results of a mosquito bite. Yet the aftermath of this one for Tank was a lot more severe. So I had kind of a cough, kind of some congestion, but I had really bad stomach flu symptoms. So a lot of vomiting, a lot of diarrhea, a lot of gastrointestinal issues, um, but also extremely bad body aches, body fatigue, headache. It was like the flu with another flu with a cold. It just started compounding. I wasn't getting better. Tank thought she might have known where her symptoms stemmed from. I'd also been to a hot spot at that time where measles was a thing. In Casa Grande that year, there was an outbreak of measles, and I had been to one of the places where this had happened. So I thought maybe, by some chance, I've caught measles. And so I contacted urgent care. Her doctor said that because she had the measles vaccine, she probably didn't have it. But the doctor wanted to test her for something else before they sent her home. He hydrated me, gave me some IV hydration, which did nothing for me. They gave me some antibiotics because my white blood count was a little bit elevated. And that was the only treatment I got. And a week later, still feeling these things, it got worse. It got much worse. And then she got her test results back. He called me back and a week later and said, you did test positive for West Nile virus. And he was shocked. And I was shocked. Tank was the ninth person that year to contract West Nile virus. She later developed meningitis and encephalitis. So I just continued to get more sick and more sick and more sick. And I'd been to the doctor. They told me there was nothing they could do. There was no treatment. There was no antivirals. There's no antibiotics. The only thing they could do is give me palliative care, but there was nothing they could do to stop the progression of this virus. She had to call the ambulance multiple times that summer. Walking and talking became difficult when she was awake, which wasn't often. She felt like she was in a haze. And five years later, she's still dealing with the effects of West Nile virus. Tank is part of a Facebook group for other people who have gotten West Nile. It's a group where people from around the world join and share their experiences. But recently, she noticed that more people were joining from a certain place. Lately, there's been people joining from Arizona. 
As we near the end of October, there have been 699 probable and confirmed cases. There have also been 47 deaths, making 2021 the deadliest year for the virus. But what does that mean for Arizona? And how did we get here? West Nile virus cases are growing in the state, the highest they've been in years. But what exactly is West Nile virus? To answer that, you must answer questions about prevention, monitoring, testing, vaccinations, and more. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer your questions about Metro Phoenix. I'm producer Amanda Liberto, and today I'm your host. We are starting a new bioscience podcast and wanted to give you a glimpse of what you can expect. To start, producer Alexandra Watts found out more about the rampant West Nile virus numbers in Arizona right now. Hi, Valley 101 listeners. I'm Alexandra Watts. I'm a producer on AZ Central's new bioscience podcast coming soon. I just started here, but I'm a proud Phoenix native, born and raised in the desert and really happy to be home. When I got back to Arizona this summer, there were more West Nile cases than usual. But like many people, including Jennifer Tank, who got it in 2016, I didn't know everything about West Nile virus. I knew nothing about it, really. Um, I just knew that it was mosquito-borne virus. And by that, I didn't really know much about what that even meant. I just knew that it was something you could catch from a mosquito, and it didn't really bother me to know that I could catch that. West Nile virus was first detected in the West Nile district of Uganda in 1937, according to the World Health Organization, but the first case came to Maricopa County in 2003. Tank's West Nile virus case was neuroinvasive and severe, but according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, it's rare that will happen, affecting about 1 in 150 people. The CDC also says that 8 out of 10 people don't develop any symptoms with West Nile virus. 1 in 5 people will have symptoms like a headache, body aches, and nausea, pretty much bad flu symptoms. But most of those individuals will also recover completely. However, as the number of West Nile virus cases is on the rise, so is the number of neuroinvasive cases that are severe. It's true that you can catch West Nile virus from a mosquito, but it's not just a virus strictly between human and insect. Dr. Crystal Hepp is an assistant director of the Pathogen and Microbiome Institute at Northern Arizona University. Humans aren't important at all for the West Nile virus cycle. It's mosquitoes and birds. Now, mosquitoes are still an important part of West Nile, and they play a dual role of being infected and infecting humans and other animals. Dr. Hepp says researchers are using mosquitoes to understand the role birds play in transmitting the virus. But we're also using these mosquito pools to understand which bird hosts are being bit by mosquitoes and could be responsible for these long distance transmissions. Because if you think about a mosquito, right? So you've got a mosquito, so of course you've got the mosquito genetics, but then that mosquito, when it takes a bird blood meal, It also has the bird genetics inside of it, so we can see what kind of bird it's bitten. And then, of course, if it's infected by a virus, we can uh, can also get at the viral genetics as well. So that's what we're really trying to do, is to take a holistic approach to understanding West Nile virus in Maricopa County, as well as other regions of the Southwest. 
and researchers have noticed a pattern in the virus. One year, the number of cases seems to rise, and the next, it drops. So 2019 was a huge year for positive mosquito pools, and we think probably also for infected birds. But then because you got so much seropositivity building up in that population in 2020, you had a lower number of infected mosquitoes that were caught, but then then the offspring of those seropositive birds, they were susceptible. And then in 2021, there was just a lot of uh, susceptible bird hosts to be infected and then really to continue that cycle. Dr. Hepp also works with Maricopa County to track, test, and research mosquitoes. But to do these things, you have to catch the mosquitoes first. And if you're wondering how that's done, let's take a trip to the southern part of the valley. It's morning, around the time of year where the state has almost abandoned the dry triple degree temperatures as it approaches the cooler weather. Antonio Laguna pulls up to a suburban neighborhood, close to a grassy common area at the end of the road. So um, I'm Inspector Laguna. I've been doing this uh, close to like uh, five years. This is my district, District 10. So it's from 91st Avenue to 7th Avenue, from McDowell to pretty much like Dobbins area, uh, South Mountain is my area. And we treat standing water, some of the local uh, areas that are known to hold water. That's what we gotta check every month. Laguna is a vector specialist for the Maricopa County Environmental Services Department. I mean, there's some times where, where you set a trap, you may not get a lot of mosquitoes. Sometimes you do, it's like a hit or miss. Usually if you keep catching them, then that's a pretty good location to keep putting the trap at. This area, I mean, we do get quite a few complaints, yeah. It's a pretty active trap. After some rain, it's more active, but yeah, there's some mosquitoes in there right now. He steps up a slight dirt slope that surrounds the field, which is about the size of two, maybe three backyards. He goes to a tree where there's a mosquito trap. The trap is a small cooler-like container with a net inside. So how does the trap work? The traps are filled with dry ice, which attracts mosquitoes. Uh, I counted about, roughly about 20. When it was warmer, it was a lot more. But yeah, there's about 20 in there right now, give or take. Yeah. It would be hard for anybody to examine a mosquito in daylight and determine if it's carrying the virus or not. But Laguna can identify mosquito larvae in standing water, which is a potential breeding ground. As Laguna explains his work and configures his trap, there are interludes of birds tweeting and vehicles coming and going. There are 25 districts and 831 traps that are set every week in the county. Maricopa County has the largest number of cases right now, but Dr. Crystal Hepp says that's because of a few factors. Certainly, we detect more virus in Maricopa County because of their amazing surveillance system. Throughout Pinal County also has a pretty good surveillance system, as does Yuma County, but most of our other county partners in the state don't have enough resources to have the kind of surveillance program that Maricopa County has. So certainly with such an extensive program like that that they're running, you're gonna you're gonna get more positive mosquito pools. Everybody that calls in a complaint, we try to call back. So sometimes it gets hard because you know we'll get seven, eight hundred complaints in a week. So it takes a lot of time to call people back. Um, but most of them are just people call saying they got lots of like this year. It's just they they got lots of mosquitoes and they want to get fogged. Jim Will is a managing supervisor at the Maricopa County Vector Control Division Lab. The lab is where the mosquitoes in Laguna's trap will go next, where they will be tested for West Nile. When you walk into the Vector Control Lab, 
it looks like a standard office. Fluorescent lights illuminate cubicles, as well as posters that show diagrams of mosquitoes. Mosquitoes from all over the valley, from Avondale to downtown Phoenix, are examined here. But our first stop in the lab isn't to see mosquitoes. It's to see fish. So that is our gambusia fish. That's what we use, we give out to people or we put them in swimming pools. The small but noticeable fish feed on some colorful flakes Will throws out of the food container. When they aren't eating this, they're eating mosquito larvae. So when we use a green pool, we always put fish in it because they'll last and they'll, they'll do, they, they multiply really fast. So where we put 20 in a pool, you go back in a couple months, there'll be a couple hundred, you go back in six, eight months, there might be a thousand. I mean, they breed really fast, so. The larvae that mature into the mosquitoes end up here in the laboratory. As we walk through the building, two lab technicians examine mosquitoes under a microscope. They're looking for the harmless males and the potential females who can carry West Nile virus. Only mosquitoes of the Culex breed can carry the virus. Females are the only ones who bite humans. Males do not. Because of this, female mosquitoes have the risk of passing West Nile to human populations. As we walk to a cubicle, Will presents mosquitoes in a small white case with a transparent top. See how those, you can see the antenna somewhat, they're really, whoop, just flew off. They're really bushy looking. See how it looks really bushy there? And down here it's not. Can you see the difference or? So you can tell right off, right off the bat, you know, that those are males, that's a female. Let's see how those are, they've got like that really bushy part on them. Let's see, this is a female where it doesn't have all that up around its head and nose type thing. Mosquitoes are then sent down the hall to another lab. The different processes they go through. This is like the trays they come in on. Little vials that have mosquitoes in it. And they'll just, uh, they test them, they grind them up. They put these little BBs in there with some chemical and they, they grind them up so that uh, they can put them in these other machines and extract the RNA from them, so they actually test the RNA. Will says that there are a few reasons why the virus is so bad this year. For one, the weather. Arizona has had a record monsoon season with a lot of rain, and that weather affects the birds that carry the virus. The birds usually this time of year are moving more towards their areas where there's water or food. Well, this year with all the water, they're staying put in areas. So the mosquitoes, they have to feed on a bird to get infected. And then with the birds staying put in all these areas, the mosquitoes are there. They're feeding on the birds and we're seeing West Nile everywhere. We're typically, the Southeast Valley's, you know, the worst at this time of year. This, this time we're seeing it everywhere. But we think it's a lot because the birds haven't had to go, they don't have to go look for water, it's right? It's available to them everywhere. In the lab, there's a sign that warns of one mosquito. Yes, one mosquito, singular, and it fits. Because if there is one mosquito that tests positive for West Nile in a trap, the square mile area surrounding it will get fogged. Areas also get fogged if there are 30 or more females from the Kulex breed or 300 mosquitoes from any breed or gender. But even after an area is fogged or clear of any West Nile threats, that's not the end of the story because for those who get West Nile virus, it can change their lives forever. It's disturbing, very disturbing. 
And now, five years later, I'm starting to have the long-term effects of it. Jennifer Tank is an Arizona resident who contracted West Nile back in 2016. Five years later, she lives in a different part of the state, and her life has been forever changed. I'm starting to have kidney issues. I'm starting to have liver issues. There's brain function stuff that's happening. You know, I've got specialists. I'm seeing 12 different, I believe it's 12 different specialists right now because there isn't one doctor that can deal with this. I saw an infectious disease doctor. They can't at this stage, you know, deal with this on one level. So you've got to go to each different doctor for each of the things. Tank is currently dealing with a wide variety of health issues. So I've got my heart now is enlarged and it's got hardened and they say this is from West Nile virus and so I've got got a cardiologist so I've got the kidney issues so I'm going to have to see a urologist got the liver issues gastroenterologist I've got you know the brain I see a neurologist you know so it's like the the life became taking on this whole tree of specialists to deal with all the separate um, issues It's just hard. (laughs) But Tank is still hopeful that one day there will be more advances for West Nile, and she hopes more people start to become aware of how this virus affects people. Maybe now is a good time, and I gotta hope that on that end of it, because there are people, I'm, I'm sure there's people that have virus fatigue, they're over it, they don't want to hear any more about any viruses or treatments or research or anything, but those, maybe those people already would have their head in the sand anyway, but the other people, maybe they're ready for it, I just gotta stay hopeful. Well, those functions are decreasing, so I, I was very lucky, there's, I feel very blessed and very lucky because I didn't get it to the extent that a lot of people that get it neuroinvasively get it worse or they lose their life. And I feel very blessed that having gotten it neuroinvasively that I am most lucky as I am to have not been hospitalized or paralyzed or, um, or worse, you know, lost my life. But with the number of cases growing in Arizona, how fast will certain advances be made? And what happens next? So we know how West Nile virus got here, and we've looked at ways that it's monitored and prevented, but there's also researchers who are doing work on how to prevent and potentially cure that in human populations. So to answer some questions surrounding that, I am joined by Melina Walling, who is another bioscience reporter. And Melina, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, Like Alex said, I am a biosciences reporter here at The Republic, so anything from COVID-19 and health to agriculture and the environment, if it's bioscience, I'll be reporting on it. And you recently did a piece on West Nile virus, super informative. If you haven't read that yet, you can check it out on azcentral.com. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the conversation that you had with one researcher who's developing a vaccine right now. 
Yeah, sure thing. So I spoke to Mark Slifka. He is a researcher at Oregon Health and Science University, and he's actually been working on a West Nile virus vaccine for over 10 years. Um, and one of the things that he really emphasized is that normally vaccines take quite a long time to develop, um, and COVID was kind of an exception because there was so much community spread happening that it was pretty easy for researchers to recruit patients for clinical trials, which is the process that helps researchers ensure that these vaccines are safe and effective for humans. Um, so for West Nile virus, there are actually nine clinical trials for a human vaccine listed on clinicaltrials.gov, but none of those trials have progressed past phase two. Um, that's partly because there's such a small population of West Nile virus cases um, that it's harder for researchers to really determine whether their vaccine is effective. So Mark Slifka hopes that will change someday, um, and he really thinks a vaccine would be important to protect elderly and immunocompromised populations, um, especially because they're most at risk when vector control doesn't necessarily stop that last mosquito with West Nile. And how far off does he believe that we are from getting a West Nile virus vaccine? The numbers are obviously up here in Arizona. Do you think that the general population could see that anytime soon? So one of the things I learned is that it's really hard for small research groups or companies to manufacture these commercial scale vaccines. So oftentimes that falls to bigger pharmaceutical companies to decide which diseases merit the development of vaccines and which ones will actually produce a return on their investment. So I don't know if I'm in a position to speculate exactly when it will hit the market, but I think we'll need to see some of these bigger companies uh, making it a real priority before it has a chance of being commercialized. So we have no vaccine right now for humans, but there is a West Nile virus vaccine for horses. So yeah, there is a horse vaccine. It's actually been around for quite a while. So West Nile virus first came to the U.S. in 1999, and pretty shortly thereafter, the first vaccine for horses was released in 2003. So there's actually about 2 million doses of that vaccine that horse owners administer every year. And it's become a pretty important part of just routine um, health for animal owners. So with this horse vaccine then, like how does that affect the potential vaccine for human populations? Yeah, so this is actually a really interesting case because with a lot of other diseases, animals are affected differently than humans are, and there's not a lot of crosstalk between medical science for humans and veterinary science. But Mark Slifka, um, who's been working on this West Nile virus vaccine for humans, um, really said that there's a lot that we can learn from veterinary medicine. And because it does work so well for horses, um, that could potentially represent an opportunity for drug companies to see that a vaccine for humans is possible. Um, and that maybe by building on the science uh, that's already been developed by the veterinary community, um, we can make progress for a human vaccine as well. So we both work on bioscience stories in different mediums, and you're covering a lot of topics under this one beat. So I just want to know, how does this research in regards to West Nile virus, how does it play into the field of bioscience at large? So yeah, one of the really cool things about this story is that there are so many aspects of bioscience kind of within it. So whether that's vaccine development or vector control or animal medicine or tracking different strains of the virus by looking at genomes, all these things really play into uh, all the ways that bioscience affects our lives. So whether that's, you know, the future of human health or our environment or the world that we live in, um, I think it's really exciting to be covering bioscience and seeing all the really huge impacts that it has. And I also think this story really shows the human impact of some of these 
diseases that don't necessarily land in the spotlight all the time, but that really have the potential to change people's lives um, one way or the other. So it was really a privilege to be able to report this piece and learn from all the researchers and patients I spoke to. Well, Melina, we look forward to reading your future reporting, and we will be working together, so you'll be hearing and seeing a lot more of us soon. But thank you so much for being here and for answering some of our questions on West Nile virus today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great to chat. Make sure to keep an eye out for our bioscience podcast coming soon. If you have more questions about bioscience or just about Metro Phoenix, make sure to submit them to our team at valley101.azcentral.com. And if you're a regular listener of our show, please consider supporting it by subscribing to azcentral.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Also, if you're an Arizona politics junkie, be sure to check out The Gaggle, our sister podcast that breaks down local issues and helps you keep up with the state's political news. It'll be in your feed every Wednesday morning. I'm Amanda Liberto. We'll see you next week.